0: Here we
1: go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to young filmmakers is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional you gotta, process. You gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of... when I dream.
0: Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. I hope you're enjoying our series about not only the life and career of Melvin Van Peebles, but also some of the lesser known history of Black representation on film. Now, it's often been said that the success of Van Peebles' film Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song heralded a decade of low-budget films led by Black directors centered around Black characters and often set to distinct funk and soul soundtracks that later came to be known as black exploitation. And while many of you will have seen or heard of some of the defining films of the 70s such as Shaft or Coffee or Superfly, I wanted to talk about some of the lesser known titles of the decade that oftentimes don't neatly fit within the tropes of black exploitation. And to help introduce us to some of these films, we have a fantastic guest, You may know her from her many years as the programmer of TCM Underground, which aired on Friday nights on Turner Classic Movies, which is how I first saw Coffee and the Mac. You may know her from her fantastic film podcast, I Saw What You Did, where each week she and co host Danielle Henderson each pick a movie around a theme and share their thoughts, insights, and criticisms. But today we will mostly be discussing her new book, which she co wrote with Katoya Murray, TCM Underground. 50 must-see films from the world of classic cult and late-night cinema. Ladies and gentlemen, Millie DeChirico, How are you doing today?
1: I'm good, Aaron. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming over. We're taping in my uh dining room right now. I
1: love it. That's <laughs> how that's how I do my own podcast. So
0: <laughs> just a couple Atlian cinephiles. Yes. You know, hanging out.
1: <laughs> hanging out in the ATL house.
0: Okay. Yeah, very ATL house. <laughs> I you, love it. You may hear some semi-trucks drive by, so you know <laughs> it's an ATL house. Um, so it's really amazing that you have this book, TCM Underground, 50 Must See Films. From the world of classic cult and late night cinema. And it's like this permanent time capsule of your work as a programmer. Now I have to ask, what qualifies a film as must-see for you?
1: Oh my gosh. Um I am not incredibly particular when it comes to like the definition of like things like, you know, because I think when when I grew up, you know, I was when I was a budding Cinephile and especially like a cult movie gal there was always this, like, pressure to have seen things. And I think there was a lot of people who were, like, hard-selling me on, on titles, like, I can't believe you've never seen you know cannibal holocaust what's wrong with you like type of (laughs) that type of uh nerd shaming you know um I mean I to me I don't have that like if you don't see this movie you're trash type of attitude I'm just like if you just have like a genuine curiosity if something is like really really weird and interesting and like kind of above the norm that's a must-see for me because I feel like people should just be watching lots and lots of movies anyway so
0: yeah yeah I think that like this is something we really relate about, which is like very opposed to the sort of exclusivity around film culture. Like the barrier for entry, like, like it should not be high. And anyone who's loves movies, like you should not be setting the bar high for entry. And like th- that total, like, oh, if you haven't seen X, Y, Z, like, yes, what are you doing? I
1: mean, that's part of, I think, what my work has been over the past, like whatever 20 years, is that I'm I'm not trying to create an environment of like, cool kids only type of thing I feel like that stuff works itself out organically really like I don't think that I don't need to make people feel excluded when it comes to film culture I feel like good taste rises to the top like people who have good taste and are cool they rise to the top organically I don't need to like figure that out for people. (laughs) I'm like, I'm just going to put everything up there. And if you like it and it's cool, then that's what happens. And if you, if you think it's weird and gross and trashy, then, and you don't like it. And then it's just not for you. But you know, I don't want to be that type of person. That's like, you know, making those decisions. Because I grew up in that culture, as I just said, and it sucked. So, (laughs) you know, like, it was really hard, kids. Uh, So, you know, I don't want to, like, encourage that kind of snobbiness.
0: I think that's also, like, a real skill and, like, a real testament, like, to your career, that you've championed so many hard-to-see films, lesser-seen films, but have done so in such, like, a gracious and open way. And without that, snobbish mentality
1: thank you for saying that because I I really do feel like that era is it's over or at least becoming over because I think that's what happens when you open the world up to people that aren't just like I don't know straight white guys or whatever like that's how I grew up is that I've spent time in like video stores and record stores and I was everything that I was learning was from you know, older, straight, white dudes, right? And they were kind of the, like, ambassadors of cool things. And I feel like once, you know, the world has opened up to other people to be a part of that, that's not that whole gatekeeping thing kind of just dissolves automatically. Like, you know, and I'm not saying, I mean, you got to know things. It's not <laughs> like I'm saying, like, anybody can join. Any You don't have to know anything. But I also feel like, you know, if you want to join the world, it's easier than ever. And if you want to learn about cool things from people who are of all different stripes, that can happen too. It yeah. just wasn't my reality when I was growing up, you know what I mean?
0: For sure. I'm curious, was there was there a movie, like a cult movie that was like you're in, like where you were like, whoa, this is what movies could be?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's like pretty, there's at least one, if not two. Um, the first time I ever saw... A movie called Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Go, go for a wild, wild ride with the Watusi cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. For your own safety, see Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. I don't know if I can cuss on this podcast. Oh, fuck yeah. Okay, because that shit blew my mind. <laughs> um, I had never seen anything like that before. I was I didn't know anything about Russ Meyer. I I pretty much didn't know anything about the exploitation world at the time. I was just very, very like, you know, starting out. Yeah. Um, and I could not believe I was watching these women like beat up men and women of color, beat up men. Like there's an Asian woman who was carrying a switchblade. And, you know, I was like, holy shit. Like this is blowing my mind. And I, I just never thought movies could be like that. Like I, it really, really changed, changed me as a person. Um, So that one is definitely, definitely one. Um, But then, you know, there was also like movies that when I was kind of in high school and college were things that were just really hard to see. And they were kind of these like Holy Grail movies. And one of them was this this movie called The Story of Ricky. A
0: boy with a special power,
1: born with the strength of 20 men. He was sent to a correctional facility where the laws of
0: survival take precedence over the laws of man
1: and it was brought to my attention because i don't know how old you are but i don't know if you remember the very early days of the daily show yes. uh with Craig Kilborn yes but they used to have that set that section of the show called five questions and it was basically this like they they used this clip of this it was basically like a kung fu movie with a guy that's like claps his hands against a guy's head and it explodes. <laughs> basically it's an exploding head. And I was like obsessed with trying to find out what that movie was and it just I could not find it. I mean obviously this was like pre-internet days so I was like do I go to Blockbuster like how do I find this movie? And it you know I had to basically Come downtown and go to like a cool video store in an alleyway in Little Five Points, Bla- <laughs> the old Blastoff Video, and I and I and I talked to somebody about it, and they told me what it was, and then I had to track it down in another very sketchy way. Uh, but like anyway, that that was the second movie that I think that I was like. I had to hunt it. And it was like the thrill of the hunt. Yeah. That really like formed me as like I was like, Oh yeah, I'm like really a cinephile now. I had to like go into an alleyway and Pay somebody to make me a VHS dub. <laughs> you know, like it's so weird, <laughs> but it happened. So
0: that's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool. I love that. I love that. I haven't seen that one. What, what did you call it? What was it called? It's again?
1: called the story of Ricky or Ricky O. It's like story um, of
0: Ricky. Yeah. Is it like I, a Hong Kong movie? Is it a, a yeah, like Shaw mean, Brothers type?
1: Yeah. I um honestly, I feel like it. I don't know if it's it's probably out on Blu ray at this point because it seems like a lot of things are. But it was, yeah, it was like a, or, or, and I can't remember who the guy was that played Ricky Don't kill me, people. I forgot. Um, but it should be out there. Yeah. Nice. You don't have to track down a VH, VHS dub of it anymore, I think. Oh, okay. You helpful. don't have your hookup, your guy? You <laughs> I don't know what happened. You can't to that text guy. me his number? <laughs> <laughs>
0: You got that Ricky O, man.
1: <laughs> no, I yeah, I don't even know if that guy's still alive, to be honest.
0: <laughs> I hope he's doing well. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm I'm super excited. Speaking of just sort of like introducing like new movies and like opening the doors to movies that have never been seen before, we're about to discuss five films from your book today that kind of fit into that like don't fit into the black exploitation genre, but touch upon changing uh, aspects of representation in film throughout the 70s and 80s. And all these movies were first watches for me. I Whoa. never saw any of these movies until two weeks ago that we agreed to do this interview. Amazing. So this has been like, yeah, this has been totally mind opening for me. It's been really fun. So I want to start in 1971 with William Crane's Blackula.
1: Yes. Blackula. Dracula's soul brother. Ah! Deadlier even than he.
0: Okay, so I'll give a little um, spiel about each movie and then we can talk about it. Okay, so... Dracula, directed by William Crane. The film is about an 18th century African prince named Mama Walde who visits Transylvania to petition Count Dracula to end the transatlantic slave trade. But Dracula reveals himself to be a racist vampire who then bites Mama Walde and traps his beloved wife Luva in a crypt. Fast forward to 1972, two gay interior decorators purchase the decor of Castle Dracula and ship a coffin to Los Angeles, awakening Mama Walde. The prince-turned-vampire tries to find his long-lost love, whom he believes has been reincarnated as a modern woman named Tina, but his romantic efforts are complicated by an insatiable thirst for human blood that attracts the attention of Dr. Gordon Thomas, a pathologist for the LAPD. The film stars the Shakespearean actor William Marshall as Mama Walde, Vanetta McGee as Tina slash Luva, and I actually don't know how to pronounce his name correctly, Thalmus.
1: I think that's a good shot.
0: Okay, Thalmus (laughs) Rasulala as Dr. Gordon Thomas. It was produced by the exploitation label American International Pictures, which was owned by MGM. They held several promotional showings in New York, and anyone wearing a flowing cape would get free admission.
1: (laughs) Blackula
0: would then go on to gross over a million dollars and become one of the highest-grossing films of 1972. So when did you first see blackula
1: gosh um probably in college i was yeah definitely on a tear of like black action films or you know definitely on an inner american international tear um and uh yeah i mean i blackula is such an evocative title for a film yeah. you're like well I gotta watch Blackula like what the fuck <laughs> this is a great who came up with this so yeah I yeah it was probably in college I would say
0: what stuck out to you like at first in watching the film and then like what sticks with you you know today
1: well obviously that it's a tale of a black vampire which at the time <laughs> I had never seen like yeah. so much of like you know what our notions at least for me at that time was that it was a Bela Lugosi thing. Like Dracula was a white dude and was from Eastern European origins. And like, you know what I mean? It was like, you just imagine that universal monsters type of thing. right? I was immediately like, well, yes. I mean, this is cool to see a black vampire period number one, but that, you know, he's sort of like a Dracula like character, right? Cause he's very, uh, commanding and he wears the suits and the little medallions and all that stuff like that but then that's i think ultimately what made that movie memorable for me was the fact that you have somebody like william marshall who is a classically trained actor i mean actor is what he is i mean he's basically like shakespearean taught and like he's you know i mean he's an incredible actor and in a way you're kind of like Wow. If like he brings a gravitas to this movie that, you know, is really amazing and probably, you know, he's probably too good for the American international scene in a weird way. You know what I mean? I hate to disparage AIP but I, I love you but it's uh, you know what I mean come on yeah, like yeah. you got like a guy with real chops you know what I mean Yeah. and then yeah I mean I think that that is what kind of made it for me over the years was just the idea of, of William Marshall the fact that it was pretty much like an all black cast with a black director and you know it's like Those types of things like, you know, just kind of stick out. So
0: it's definitely cool how they like bring this idea of vampirism, like into like slavery, colonialism, like, and this, the way this like curse is like passed on Um, very political statement within that.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's kind of like, you know, what the director William Crane was trying to do. I mean, I think he he was trying to make a legit vampire movie that, was speaking to the Black experience specifically. And, you know, I think he wanted to make it a very, I wouldn't say serious necessarily, but he was definitely like he had serious mind, a serious mind to make it and wanted it to be like a legit movie, not just like some schlocky stuff. You know what I mean? And I appreciate that. I think it, it definitely comes through in the film that it's it's got those, themes you know what I mean
0: I just circling back what you were talking about with William Marshall I on the one hand it's like he it's like he's doesn't fit in within the universe but it kind of works because like Dracula doesn't fit in with the modern world and like he is this like transplant from like a different age and William Marshall like comes out with this like deep voice <laughs> and, and and he's also like he's he's sexy and he's like trying to woo this woman (laughs) and like and they end up like consummating the relationship and like yeah it's um it's so in so many ways it shouldn't work and yet you can't imagine Blackula working with any other actor. Oh, I
1: know. Uh, you're totally right about that.
0: You um, you write in your book here, I have a little blurb. Ooh. I have blurbs. Oh, my gosh. I got blurbs. I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Great blurbs. Right. Beautiful blurbs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you write, quote, in the many scenes featuring Dr. Thomas, his frustrations with his mostly white colleagues in the department have to do with convincing his white superiors to take the mostly black victims in his case seriously. Race also informs the remarks of the white morgue attendant played by the classic character actor, Elisha Cook Jr. Is that how I pronounce his name? Yep. Elisha? Okay, Elisha Cook Jr., who I mostly think of uh, from Stanley Kubrick's uh, uh, The Killing. Yes, um, yes, So Elisha Cook Jr., he wheels uh, a victim, Juanita out to be examined by Dr. Thomas and he comments that black women who drive taxi cabs are promiscuous. Mm. And Dr. Thomas has to kind of like fight, you know, it's not even like a big deal but he like has to subtly kind of like dismiss this guy. Yes. Uh and it's like there's little moments like that that I think to a modern audience or like maybe on a first watch like they might just like pass you by because like we don't realize how revolutionary they were at the time.
1: Yeah, that that part I mean, th- that is kind of, I think, what I was saying earlier about William Crane trying to insert a little a bit of that information into the film. Because, you know, that to, that to me is, I think, what makes a movie like Blackula a little bit more, I don't know, it kind of raises it a little bit in, into a, a movie that is doing a lot more than I think people thought it would. Like, I think people like Blackula, Black Vampire Movie, got it, AIP, fun, But there's so much of that in the film. Like there's this kind of intertext almost that is like if you (laughs) study it as much as I have, because that's my my chronic problem is that I'm always like rewinding and like, like, wait, what was that? Like, I'm always like trying to find like these little pockets of meaning. Yeah. And like that to me really stood out because it's like, yeah, I mean, I think that that sentiment is still unfortunately a part of the, like people still think these things about black women. And there's definitely like biases towards like, to me in healthcare is like a perfect example. So it's just that moment where you're like, oh God, that is literally happening now. And it's in a movie from like the early seventies and it's, in Blackula.
0: It makes me think, like, and like you said, like, this; these are still problems today, but, like, this movie's, you know, being in production in 1971, is released in 1972. You know, these are years, you know, often considered of, like, maybe the most, like, active, like, serial killer years in the country. Mm-hmm. Many of whom were targeting, you know, uh, women often of color or yeah. sex workers. Yep. And they were not being caught because these people were considered less dead. Yeah, You know what I mean? Then, you know, sort of, like, white girl victims or whatever totally and so for um this line to be in this movie like at that time before these things were even like big news stories is incredibly prescient yeah and like is worthy of highlighting
1: yeah and i think that that's kind of like i think that's what the book especially for toya and i i mean we i think that's kind of like what we were trying to do with the book is to to take a movie like that and maybe like find these points that really spoke to us. And I think as women, we were just like, oh wow, what a line to say. Just like Elisha Cook Jr. kind of this like, you know, comedy foil type of character is actually saying something that's like, I don't know, like it, there's some, there's something there to that to think about. And um, I think that's how we processed the information that we saw, like when you watch the movie, I th- that's how I watch a movie is like, again, Going back and forth and being like, "What was that? That's a weird thing to say." That can't believe that guy did that. That's crazy.
0: And I can also look in my own movie watching past, and the reason why I never watched Blackula was because I was like, "Blackula, get it? Seventies schlock, get it? Yeah. Like done. I already know this movie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no. without having watched it.
1: I, totally. And I think that's that. I think is the bigger point, really, to to some of these cult films is that they're fun. You know, obviously, I mean, I'm not trying to say that some of these movies that we wrote about in the book are like high art necessarily. But I feel like as a viewer, you know, there are sometimes you come at any kind of text and you're thinking about it in in ways that are or maybe like what people didn't expect. I mean, yeah, you look at something like. I don't know, half of the things in the book, if not everything in the book, and people are like, oh, what a fun romp. And it can be a fun romp and it can be weird and crazy, but sometimes you have these little nuggets of meaning. And Blackula is a little bit more than just the schlock to me.
0: I totally agree, I totally agree. Well, we're gonna move beyond Blackula to (laughs) even deeper vampiric waters here with 1973's Ganja and Hess. So, this one directed by Bill Gunn. The film is about an anthropologist, Dr. Hess Green, who becomes a vampire after his assistant stabs him with an ancient cursed dagger. When the assistant's wife shows up, she and Hess become lovers and he turns her into a vampire. However, in a state of disillusionment, Dr. Green returns to a Christian church and commits suicide by prostrating before a cross, leaving his lover, Ganja, to remain a vampire. The film stars Dwayne Jones as Dr. Hess Green in his only other starring role other than Night of the Living Dead, and Marlene Clark as Ganja Meda. This movie, man, mm. whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'm i kind of speechless by it. Yeah. I, I'm left speechless.
1: Yeah, this is... um. So, you know, when the book, when Toy and I were coming up with how to write it and, you know, kind of what we were both going to do, you know, we decided that we were just going to pull a list of all the titles that had ever aired on Underground. And it had been on for 17 years. So there was over 400 titles that had aired. And, you know, we went through the master list and we're like, okay, this one, this one, this one. And, you know, she picked 25 and I picked 25 to write about. And we only had, like, I think it was only two movies that we both picked, and this was one of them. <laughs> we both wanted to write about Ganjin Hess, but then I was, of course, like, take it. Like, I would love to hear your opinion on Ganjin Hess and how it influenced you. So, you know, this was something, like, in the book that she really, really went hard on, and it's great. She talks about it in a, such a great way, but um, t- a, such a mind-blowing movie that I think only now has is getting its flowers in a weird way. Like, I mean, there, people did not know about this movie like 10 years ago. It really wasn't out there.
0: What is it about this film that made you put it on that, 20, that top 25 list?
1: I mean, I just think it's so unique and so interesting. And it's very like, it is like a piece of art to me. And I, you know, am very fascinated with Bill Gunn. Um, I think that his career was really fascinating and he, um, I don't think was able to do all of the things he really wanted to do in his, you know, I mean, it's sad and it goes back to the ideas of like, who gets to make art and who doesn't. And unfortunately, I think as a black man at that time, like, I don't, I think that they, he wasn't just given everything that he needed. You know, especially when you think of people like Jordan Peele or something. Now, I mean, it's like you need like a, a person like Bill Gunn. Like, you know, he could have done so much more if he had just lived in a different era or like lived longer or whatever. It's sad, but um, but yeah, I mean, and it's just and again, it's taking this kind of like old story, like the the concept of vampires, right, and the Dracula stories, the kind of stuff. Um is kind of like a standard type of story, but then the f- idea of taking it and making it his own and making it in- like very different, I think it's very of the era. I think it kind of talks about addiction yeah you in know a, in, a, in a like that is a component to horror and and specifically vampire lore that I think is an interesting path to take totally so I mean there's just a lot going on and, and honestly like it's beautiful I mean just beautiful like the two most beautiful people to be in a film yeah. <laughs> like they're like golden I mean it's it's incredible so
0: yeah the the film is why it's it's wild yeah. I, I I think my first impression though is that like watching the movie I can. I'm imagining like some sort of uh, like a script coverage intern at a studio, like reading the script. First of all, it's broken up into three parts. The third part like takes up like more than half the movie, so like that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the major action happens off screen, or like they're just like referencing it. And the majority of the film is like kind of stoic characters like sitting around, like talking about like what happened, and it, like exists in this weird place of like the subtext is like being actually spoken out loud and like but sort of deeper meanings are like constantly being hidden there's wild dream fantasy sequences throughout Mm -hmm. you have a a protagonist which like I feel like on the surface is like from Hollywood standards quote unquote unlikable because he's like depressed the whole time he's like he's like moping around I don't think he smiles once in the entire film Mm -hmm. like he shows nothing of like being in love or you know it's like, and and then he commits suicide at the end, Mm -hmm. which his assistant does at the, is like talking about the beginning, like suicide is like throughout the whole film. Yeah. And then on top of that, the one technical thing that I have to add is that the, the audio is a little rough.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: (laughs) Gorgeous visuals. Audio is a little rough. So all these things together, conceivably you would watch this movie and be like, well, good try, but uh, you know, like better luck next time. Yeah. And yet the movie operates on a level that is really deep the kind of stuff that like you really just don't come across in in films a lot and you're and I'm left I watched this maybe like five days ago yeah and the second that it ended I was like okay something like just happened
1: yeah yeah
0: I went to my bedroom like where my wife was and I was like I just watched a movie and like I don't know what I think about it (laughs) you know what I mean and it's like sticks with you
1: yeah yeah absolutely I mean when I Like I said, this was, again, like a film that I just um, had heard about for so long, and it just was almost, like, hard to track down, like, all throughout, you know, my, not childhood necessarily, but my teen years and my 20s. Like, I was, like, never going to be able to see this movie. Like, I'm just, (laughs) like, I'm going (laughs) to give it up. But then I guess it was maybe, like, over a decade ago or, or maybe a little bit longer is when, you know, they started finding, like, doing the restoration work on it, put it out on home video. And so I got to see it in, you know, a restored quality, which I'm very thankful for, because I think if I had gone down the VHS dub route, it would have been, like... Because it was called all these different things, too. Like, I think at a certain point, when it was released, they tried to go the, like, exploitation route, and I can't remember the alternate title of it, but it was, like, blood something like blood yeah. family or blood something being promoted as an exploitation film as opposed to like I think it's like an art film to be honest totally and that to me I think is is ultimately what it comes down to and why I think that it rocks people so hard cuz that is such an artistic endeavor like it is really like a person who is is making art and and he has a statement to make and maybe there's a lot of ideas and he was trying his best to work within the confines of this like hard to navigate Hollywood racist fucked up system. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what kind of came out is like this story where the characters are not perfect. And there's a lot of like, I think as part of the era, this very kind of like, I mean, it seems very countercultural almost. It's got kind of this like hippie, vibe to it in a way it's very visually like stunning like you said and just very like I don't know kind of like an acid trip or something I hate to you know use that because a lot of people say that's kind of the vibe of some of these films but I just think it's very special like I mean people weren't making like and Hess like at all before it came around I mean it's amazing so
0: yeah no it's it's really unique and as someone who's watched a lot of movies like you come across this and you're like okay this is different
1: yeah yeah,
0: and that's that's amazing. Yeah, for a movie that's now uh, fifty years old, like this God, year,
1: it's mind blowing
0: to to hold up like that. Yeah, what's a moment that uh, like when you think of Ganja and Hess, like what's the image or sound that like pops into your head?
1: Well, I think it's when the Bill Gunn character is like shirtless and he's, um, I guess, like in that mode where he's—I I don't know if he's on his knees at that moment, but I think it's like it's like one of the suicide moments
0: like after he gets out of the tub yeah, and yeah has yeah. like the pistol
1: yeah yeah I mean that is like that is so such a evocative moment for me like and I think that they ended up using that in some of the promotional materials like I think that that because I remember seeing a still of it once like going through Instagram or something like that and I was like holy shit I was like yeah that's like the part that I really stuck out to me There's a lot – and like, a lot of, like, um, in the house, when you're, like, watching them in the house and there's just, like, that house with the decor and, like, the furniture and stuff, it's – in the house itself. I mean, it's just kind of, like, kind of baroque or something. It's a lot. It's, like, a vibe, as I can say.
0: (laughs) It's definitely a vibe. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Again from the book, quote – Bill Gunn didn't want to make a vampire film when first approached to do so by Kelly Jordan Enterprises. It was 1972 and Blackula was close to being released, so producers wanted in on what was sure to be a novelty treat at the box office. Gunn took the $350,000 offered to him, but instead of a down-the-line vampire flick, he made an arthouse film about a man in spiritual crisis and made him a vampire doctor for good measure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah right like, i'll make a vampire movie but i'm gonna make it my way
0: and you really feel that throughout like the vampirism is it's important and yet it feels kind of just like um a surface level like yeah. the, like the real issues that are happening are, are are much deeper below the genre
1: yeah i think it's being used in a kind of like it's a symbolic thing more than just a straight down the line you know like uh I think that when he decides to turn her, when Dwayne Jones' character decides to, to turn um, Ganja, I, I think it's it's not necessarily like a thing that we've just kind of classically seen in vampire films, like even like the Hammer movies or something, like where it's like, you're mine. Like, I think there's more to it. I think that the, the, that lore, the vampire lore, is being used a little bit less on the nose it means a lot more symbolically.
0: Just an amazing film. Also, shout out to a, a previous guest on this podcast, Chris Seving, who just wrote a, an entire book about Ganja and Hess, which now I have to go Whoa. read. Um, we were talking about it for our other interview, and he's like, yeah, I have this book that just came out about Ganja and Hess. And I was like, I haven't watched it. So, <laughs>
1: Wow, <But laughs> what a great book to write. Yeah. I got to get that too. Yeah,
0: so we got to check that out. Yeah. Um, okay, so now I'm going to move on from sort of out there vampire films to... This really lovely kitchen sink drama called Five on the Black Hand Side.
1: I don't mean to be dipping into y'all's
0: business, but you've been carpetized, blackularized, and superflied. You've been macked, hammered, slaughtered, and shafted. Now we want to turn you on to some brand new jive. You're gonna be glorified, unified, and filled with pride when you see five on the black hand side. Five on the This film directed by Oscar Williams is based on the play by Charlie L. Russell. The film centers around the Brooks family, wife Gladys and her three children, Booker T, Gideon and Ruby, as they all come into conflict and eventually stand up to their overbearing father, John Henry. At first, Gideon and Gladys use militant protest tactics, including a list of demands and picket lines to change John Henry's ways, but they are ultimately persuaded to shift their approach to love and Black power by Ruby's fiancé Marvin. At Marvin and Ruby's wedding, the buttoned-up conservative John Henry dons an African dashiki and dances with his wife, showing that he's willing to concede some of his overbearingness. The film stars a fantastic starting five. If this was a basketball team, uh, <laughs> this, <right. laughs> is a, this is a dominant starting five. You got Clarice Taylor as Mrs. Brooks, who's is, I think is just the absolute runaway star of the film. Yeah. Leonard Jackson as Mr. Brooks, who's clearly having so much fun playing an absolute prick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Virginia Capers as Ruby. Glenn Turman as Gideon, amazing actor who I mostly know as uh, the corrupt mayor, Clarence Royce from The Wire. Yes, um, yes.
1: I knew him from uh, a different world he played and he was also in uh, so many things
0: yeah he's constantly popping up well in this movie he's like 20 years old he's ripped to shreds oh i know he does this like shirtless kung fu routine on their roof (laughs) and he's like like this man's body like he looks like an adonis it's it's wild um and then uh Derval Martin as Booker T and of course he would go on to direct Dolomite yes. uh, later in the decade so just absolutely stunning yeah. cast I, which is your favorite uh, uh, out of these five family members
1: i mean i love uh Glenn Turman like i just i i don't know it's it's so it's so hard to pick you know like i love him as an actor like i said i grew up um watching him in a different world and he was like god i want to say he was like a like the rotsy guy or something he was like a a military guy in the show you know you just have seen him in so many things and you know i i saw this movie i didn't see this as a kid i saw this much later and so anytime he was on screen i was like i don't know i just get the feeling of remembering him from my childhood and from so many things so i just like follow him in the movie
0: yeah i love that like when actors have these like you know 30 40 50 year careers and like you're growing with them and like you always have like carry those certain memories and yeah like, and it's so crazy how like our brains do that where we attach like past performances onto their current one and all of a sudden like they gain gravitas over time it's just such a weird
1: i know i mean i'm guilty of this co- constantly where you will watch something that's on tv like right now or something and then you're like, who plays the dad in this? Like who he and then you're like, Oh, he made like hundred and fifty movies. Like right. you're like, or whatever. <laughs> like if you watch like Succession, you're like, Oh, Brian Cox has been around forever or something. You know, you just think about it and it's kind of mind blowing because there are so many, so many people who are still acting from those days, from like I mean, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they're still working and doing things, and they're kind of being reintroduced to, like, a whole new generation, so.
0: Yeah. Now, when it comes to Five on the Black Hand side, like, how would you pitch this film, like, to somebody who's, like, like, doesn't know anything about it? Yeah. And, like, sort of what elements would you highlight to, like, get them to a theater to see
1: it? Well, that's... I think it's interesting that you called it a kitchen sink movie, because it is that thing. And I think that that is ultimately, like, what as a programmer i think you know there was um, a kind of uh i don't know a conversation that i might i might have had with myself at a certain point because TCM underground was on for a really long time and at a certain point you're like okay are we like what are, what are we doing are we only going to be playing like a racer head you know what i mean like at a certain <laughs> point like how do you sustain a franchise you know, and have this like a very narrow, like a narrow view of like what could appear on this late night franchise. Right. And so to me, I thought it was appropriate to play a movie like this, because it's like I, it's not one of these movies that comes out as this. It's not like this. It's not gonchin and Hess. It's not Eraserhead. It's it's but it is interesting and I think is a cool story to show. Um, especially considering it's like a black f- family, you know, I mean, at, I think that that belongs as part of the franchise and like Toya, who, unfortunately I wish she was here right now. Cause she loves this movie and she wrote about it for the book. She really championed it as something for the book. Like she wanted to write about it. She thought, okay, maybe this isn't like the most culty cult exploitation schlock film. It's, but it is important to talk about. It. I think more people should see it. Um, it's kind of like, there's another movie, I don't know if you're about to say it, but I'm going to risk saying it first. Um, there's a movie called MMA that's also in the book that is s- s- very similar, like in that way, where it's not like, I think people kind of thought, it's a exploitation movie because there's black people in it, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, and you're like, actually, no, it's got a lot more going on. And that's kind of how I feel about this movie too.
0: If anything, like this movie is like, anti-schlock I mean and like anti-blaxploitation every opportunity where you know you can imagine yourself as a writer you know writing the script and of course this was a play before it became a movie but you can just imagine like sitting down there'd be ample opportunity to throw in a weapon violence sex like making some sort of ex escalation point yeah and it really consciously doesn't do that it stays true to what it is which is a family drama yeah and Within the context of nineteen of movies that were out in 1973, like that is that is a statement in and of itself.
1: Totally, totally, totally. I think it's like it was kind of like revolutionarily it was not an action film. It's talking about people, right? And I mean, I think that in Hollywood, certainly at that moment, everyone was like, Well, you gotta be shaft. You gotta be on the street, like, shooting people, and, like, the police have to be involved, and we have to have a guy rolling over the hood of a car or whatever. It's, like, what black movies are, and I just feel like that's obviously not true with this movie. It's it's a great film. I mean, I'm glad that you wanted to talk about it, because I feel like it's one of the m- movies in the book that I think um, is, like, a little hidden gem, you know?
0: I had never heard of it. You know, the other thing that I think is worth, like, bringing up is that, like, it the film attempts to... Uh Bridge like bring into sort of like nineteen seventies feminism and like women's lib like as like the next logical step like beyond civil rights yeah Uh, basically like you have this Gladys the mother character um you know she's like the her husband is kind of like micromanaging her he makes her like show him her schedule book every day and he like gives her notes on like how she should schedule her day and he's Mm. like this is when you should take a walk and she's like totally beaten down and was just like and this actress who plays the who plays this character is so evocative like her face is just like seared into my memory and then she like finally opens up to like some of the other women in her building and she's like today's the day I'm going to leave him And instead of like being like, yeah, like get out of here. They're like, no, we're going to make him change. And so they like start this picket line, like out in front of the house. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't remember what their signs are, but they're like, men need to change their ways. Yeah. This is like big stuff.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's like, that's bold. I would love to be doing that kind of stuff right now. (laughs) Like making, (laughs) like making people change. Like it's such, seems like such a futile task, but hey, I mean, they tried it. It's great. Like, yeah, it's such a fun film and like, I don't know. I like I said I think it's one of the more unsung films in the book, which is interesting because I think we were all we she and I were both trying to really like highlight stuff that was important for us personally and I know that this movie um uh, means a lot to her.
0: If you're listening, thank you so much, <laughs> Toya, for pro- putting this in the book. I would have not seen it otherwise. We
1: should have flown her in from France to have her talk about it. So. Oh, <laughs> she could have been in the ATL house with us.
0: Yeah, so. let me work on that budget, yeah. On that, that French flight <laughs> budget um, for this podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, let me check my blurbs. I kind of think we covered some of my blurbs. Oh, well, this is important. From the book, quote, Five on the black hand side is possibly the first film of its time to capture the inner machinations of the barbershop, a place where lively dialogue and interaction take place. Mm. So the father, John Henry, he runs this male only barbershop with no women allowed. Right, He goes so far as to like desanitize like the air after like a woman like pops her head in. It's like totally crazy.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, Over the top.
0: But they, like, spend a lot of time in this movie just sort of, like, sitting with the characters as they tell jokes and, and like, riff with one another. And as modern audiences, we, of course, have a million references to, like, place this in time. Yeah. But I guess in 1973, like, no one had, at least maybe white audiences, had no idea that this barbershop culture existed.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's the thing, is that, like, that it takes movies to, like, really kind of, in weird ways to kind of explain these like cultural specificities of people like and that's the thing is that I I I don't think a lot of white people knew that that was a thing either I don't know if I could ever recall seeing a barbershop scene a black barbershop scene in a movie before this one
0: and I think in some ways the barbershop scene has like has developed its own conventions at this point. Oh, I mean like definitely. like especially like coming to America, like uh-huh. has like kind of locked it within a certain expectation of at least my brain as yeah. an audience member. What this movie did though that was really cool and it because this kind of all ties into like our series about Melvin Van Peebles is so Melvin Van Peebles when he was growing up in Chicago, his um grandfather owned a barbershop around the corner and he has a quote from some interview somewhere where he talks about like once he got to college and he was learning about philosophers like Greek philosophers debating in the agora he imagined in his mind the setting was his grandfather's barbershop and the way these guys talked all day was like Greek philosophers in the agora yeah and the way this movie like handles some of the scenes in the in the barbershop really like brought that story of Melvin's life to life yeah for me yeah um and it's just really cool
1: <laughs> I love that that's great yeah I mean I that's so cool that that that's what I love about movies God I could talk about that all day it's just like certain sort of things that remind you of other things that are on your mind and I love that you made that connection point that's so cool
0: I mean movies can be such a powerful vehicle for experiencing... The world, like I, I know I've talked in previous podcasts about like traveling to places. Mm-hmm. If I've seen a movie from that country, like my experience is totally different. Yeah, it gives me a sense of place, a sense of storyline, a sense of like character. Yeah, and that's powerful. <laughs>
1: uh, absolutely, I mean I. A little bit about myself, if you will. Please. But, um, you know, both of my parents are immigrants. And they um, my dad is from Italy and my mom is from the Philippines. And I remember seeing Lino Broca's Manila and the Claws of Light for the first time. And was, like, fucking rocked by that. Like, I was like, I cannot believe that I'm watching a Filipino movie taking place, like, in the city, like, in Manila, a place I've been before. And it's just, like, it It really, like, I mean, it just was, like, a huge moment for me. Because I was, like, yeah, I mean, it, like, that's why it's important for, like, international films to come to America and, like, we can have access to these things because it's, like, yeah, I mean, it, it movies are just, like, such a, a way to be able to experience things that are outside of your scope, you know, at the present moment. And I was like, I remember seeing that movie and being like, Holy shit. Like they, I mean, obviously they nailed it (laughs) because it was there, (laughs) but it was that moment where it just took me back to like being there and just the whole, the vibe. And like, I could smell the smells and experience the heat and you know, all that stuff. I mean, it's amazing.
0: My wife's parents are both from India. Yeah. Both Indian immigrants. And we went to India before our wedding. Which, wow. like, w- like probably shouldn't have done because, like, expectations of marriage are, like, very different over there. So, we were, like, <laughs> I was, like, going and meeting my ex- future extended family. But they were sort of, like, why are you here? Are you asking our permission? Are you just, <laughs> like, telling us? Like, what is this? Sure. So, and and we were, like, going on this, like, tour de force across northern India, like, meeting all these people. Yeah. And um, it was very emotional. It was a very difficult time. I mean, just travels hard in and of itself. But then it's like, you know, you want to be accepted. You want all this sort of pre-marriage stuff. Yeah. And it's not even like the right part of India. And I for anyone who's listening, yes, I'm very aware that Delhi and Agra are very different than West Bengal. Mm-hmm. But my love of Satyajit Ray movies, like, yeah. it gave me some just bearing of place Yes, and some bearing of... Of, of something i don't know during these like car rides between these cities like i would think about the movies and i would feel just slightly more comfortable as if like a part of me had been here before Definitely. and i didn't feel so alone yes
1: <laughs> yes oh, to- oh totally i mean everything about it is through the movies i mean i just came back from a trip i went to europe a couple weeks ago and um I mean England is a big country (laughs) There's a lot of like the minute I got to England the first thing I I was like I want to go to the train station where they filmed Brief Encounter Encounter. yeah (laughs) and my friend is like uh, I think that's like a four-hour train ride. I was like, oh, it's not just down the street. That's the only thing I know about about England or whatever. And I mean, that is so funny because that's the thing about travel and watching films is that you're just like, you feel like, you, like you said, you, you've been there before. In the same way that it's like that barbershop moment reminds you of like Melvin Van Peebles and like his experience. It's just like... The power of film, the power of cinema.
0: It's also so funny that you were like, I went to England, and the second you were like train station, I was like, Brief Encounter, Brief
1: Encounter. (laughs) And like, it's so funny because my friend that lives over there was like, I mean, I don't think she's seen Brief Encounter. I don't even think she cares about movies from the 40s or whatever and she was just like okay nerd <laughs> like, what the hell
0: you mean they're not all they're not all lean heads over there uh... I, know, I
1: was like sorry i just want to go see a train station so.
0: <laughs> i want to run out after a train and... i know
1: so embarrassing
0: uh, it's amazing i love it oh, don't be embarrassed be proud um uh okay so moving away from our barbershop kitchen slash kitchen sink drama yes While we can celebrate and enjoy and appreciate five on the black hand side for its humanity for its slice of life realism that doesn't mean that we don't enjoy a good ass kicking slash assassination plot (laughs) and that brings us to 1975's friday foster hey
1: friday what you doing girl hey what you doing girl
0: Okay, Friday Foster, directed by Arthur Marks. The film follows an ex-model-turned-magazine-photographer, Friday Foster, who, after witnessing an assassination attempt on the nation's wealthiest African-American, Blake Tar, she teams up with a private detective named Colt Hawkins to investigate. Soon they discover a plot to eliminate the country's African-American political leadership. This cast is ridiculous yes i so again first time watching this movie the people that just keep popping up on the screen okay we got eartha kid we got carl weathers in his second ever role and he doesn't even say a single word in this role he's like a <laughs> silent hitman yes we got scatman Carruthers. love it godfrey cambridge in his final film role ever mm-hmm. yafit kodo the best and then of course the Absolutely magnificent Pam Greer. Yes. I mean, what? what I, I can't believe this cast exists.
1: <laughs> I know. I mean, it's like nothing but the hits, you know? I like this is another like Toya film, by the way, because and what we had discussed, we, you know, we played a lot of the Pam Greer films on Underground. Sure. Obviously. Of course. And when we were trying to come up with, I remember there was a discussion of saying, like, because this is happening a lot where we were like, okay. You have multiple films made by these like very classic exploitation cult people, be it John Waters or Pam Greer or, you know, just like these people like Roger Corman, you know, this kind of stuff. But here we have this opportunity to talk about movies in the way that we want to. And like, let's shoot our shot, dude. Like, let's pull like instead of taking a movie like Foxy Brown or coffee that we felt like had, had been written about a lot. Sure. Why not pick something like Friday Foster, which I feel like is a movie that doesn't get talked about a lot in, in terms of Pam Greer's filmography. Like everybody, you know, kind of gravitates obviously towards Foxy Brown or something, but like, I think Friday Foster is a great film and she's so gorgeous in it. I'm like, Oh my God, that's my, it might be my favorite look maybe of hers.
0: She's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean,
1: what why do you think her
0: performance and just like her as an actress like cuz it's like I the whole time I was watching this is like you could take her her performance, her role, plop her into t- a new movie in 2023 and it would feel absolutely modern. Yeah. There's not a single dated note outside of like the clothes and like the story content.
1: Yeah, exactly. The
0: way she carries herself is so of our time. Like, why do you, how do you, th- what do you think that is? Like, what is that about her?
1: I think she has like a naturalism to her. And I, you know, you're an actor, I'm not. So please correct me if I'm getting some of this wrong. But... I know nothing. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's clear when people are trying. To act in a weird way like I and I feel with her she just has this like quality about her and maybe it's a confidence to this she's the most beautiful woman of all time or something but she has it's it's like a naturalism and I think it prevents her from being like a character actor in a way like she's like you know in a way that she's like okay well I'm, I'm making these films and they seem to be kind of roughly in the same wheelhouse, right? Black action, that kind of thing. But I think that there she kind of rises above it because she's not consciously aware that she's being the like badass you know what I mean? Like she's being a person who is playing a role or something. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like whereas like I feel like a care like a true character actor like knows that it's a performance, you know.
0: You know, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, she said in interviews, you know, like, well, I didn't mean to be, like, a ass-kicking, like, woman. Right. Like, those were just the roles I could get. Yeah. You know, like, like I, I, like, took risks and, like, not out of, like... Not because I was so gutsy, but out of necessity, like yeah. I wanted to work and like these were the roles I could get. Yeah. And so I feel like there's like she had to be aware, which like is then even more amazing that she was able to like bring this totally like off the cuff, like realism yeah. to it. I mean, it just blows my mind.
1: Yeah. I mean, as like a survival mechanism, it's like she knew like this is my career. But she wasn't going to, like, be corny about it. I guess that's maybe what I mean is that there doesn't seem to be, like, a corny quality to her.
0: At no point does she ever, like, judge her material.
1: Yes. That's important. Yes. You know? Because I feel like they're, like, I don't know. I start start thinking about, this is maybe a, (laughs) this is, like, a new road. Like, I apologize if I, if I go down this road and it doesn't apply to the podcast. derail it.
0: Derail it. Let's derail.
1: Well, but it's like (laughs) the concept of like kind of people being consciously aware that they're in cult movies. Do you know what I mean? Oh,
0: yes. Such an issue.
1: Yes. I think it sucks. I think it's unfun. It's
0: fucking bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. Like the way that like, like like, for some reason like pops in my head like Sharknado. Yes. You know, it's like this purely like constructed cult movie and it's like, no, 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 you don't get it. Yeah. Plan 9 from Outer Space is amazing because Ed Wood believed with all of his heart that this was, like, something good. Yes. Like, that's, it's the earnestness. 100%. If you're not earnest, like, I have no interest.
1: Yes. It needs to be, it has to be real. It has to be earnest. Because beyond that, sorry, I just spit on your spit guard. On your- <laughs> that's, what it's, that's what it's there for. Yeah, no, you're going to have to disinfect the shit out of this after like, Um Like, When people, like, are aware that they're making this, like, campy, crazy thing, you can tell. As a cult movie audience, like, you can pick up on that kind of stuff. I mean, I can't, unfortunately, feel that way with, like, Nicolas Cage. Like, I see Nicolas Cage movies. I'm like, ugh, okay. Absolutely. He's doing it. Yeah, he's doing
0: it again. All with this knowing wink to the audience of like, look at me being crazy. And it's like, that's not what I go to the movies for, dude. Like, I don't go for ironic sarcasm. Our world is filled with ironic sarcasm all the time. Like, I can go to Twitter. Like,
1: (laughs) Yes. And that's that's the thing about, to your point about the Pam Greer thing, that I feel like uh, she accidentally stumbled into being an icon right she wasn't like coming to set every day being like I'm Foxy Brown I'm the (laughs) most badass motherfucking bitch and I'm like no 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 like she this was like a, this was a job you know what I mean and you know most people that are just working and they're making earnest films like these people who are making these you know historically like quote unquote like bad film. They didn't come at it being like, I'm making a bad film. I can't wait for people to think it's bad. Like it's like, no, no, no. They were making what they thought was art, you know? And it just missed some in some way. Like the translation got missed somehow and then it ended up being this cult film. And I feel like if you you can't reverse engineer that shit. Like you can't be like, well let's make a weird cult movie.
0: Absolutely. This is such a it's such a great point. And it is such a core belief of mine as a as a watcher. Yes, and you know it when you see it. Like yeah. you feel it in your gut, and yeah. it, and it drives me crazy.
1: I know. I think people are so they're so thinking about like the viralness of things now in film, like where they're just like, we gotta make a movie about a sassy girl robot because we gotta go viral like we got and not to say that I didn't enjoy Megan okay don't get on my case people but I'm just saying I enjoyed it but it's like you knew you were watching something that was a viral sensation before you were actually watching it right Right. that's crazy to me
0: they're watching themselves do it The act of making art all of a sudden becomes performative in and of itself, which at times can be harnessed by, like, a really great artist to bring this extra element, like, into a film. But when it's on a corporate level, when it's, like, Jason Blum, like, master crafting some sort of marketing strategy, like, for these films, which, like, unfortunately, like, in our modern film economy and like movies have always existed at this weird cross section of art and commerce like we totally get that there was never a platonic ideal of artistic movie making right and yet that element today and i think with especially the way that social media and it's like churn for content has brought a really cynical aspect to movie making that i find repulsive
1: and it's you know it's interesting too because they don't hollywood seems to me to be so anti-experimental mental these days oh yeah that you couldn't even accidentally make a bad movie like you couldn't like they don't will even allow you to.
0: but it's why like a movie like cats is like it kind of feels like a miracle
1: it's like this movie like
0: should not have been made yes and yet it was
1: (laughs) yeah And, and but it's like that is what will will persist throughout this like modern conceit of film is that you're like Oh, but they will definitely give some rando trillions of dollars to make this overblown insanity and nobody will watch it. <laughs> like, or like, people will be like, what the fuck is going on? That I have, that gives me the hope is that like the flops, like the just the pure box office flops, but it's almost like, you know, unless you have. If, if you're like a Ed Wood, like you're like a one man band type of guy and you just somehow, because that's like hilariously enough, a lot of cult movies, that's how they happen is because it's like some rich guy had a specific vision and they wanted to do it <laughs> too. They didn't care. They were like, this is my life's work. I mean, that's like, Timothy Carey, that's like, you know, Ed Wood, like all these people making these like Magnum opuses or whatever.
0: <laughs> magnum opi.
1: Opis, yeah. And you're just like, God bless you. Like it we we that's your thing. Like you did that. You know, and you're like, wow, it's shocking. But I yeah, I think that's kind of like what I mean about that Pam Greer thing that we just talked about, is just that I feel like she kind of existed outside of like her own sense of who she was in the culture. You know, in a lot of ways. And she didn't know it until much later. She was like, oh, yeah. I'm like, I was just working. Y'all were the ones that made me a star, which is cool because she is one.
0: So there's a quote here, and then I want to tie it back to, like, this specific moment that, like, for me really embodies this quality. Yeah, yeah. So, here, so from the book, quote, While this isn't her most iconic role, the film feels like a sea change from her previous work as a sassy, hard-nosed, independent woman. Greer had embodied these elements effortlessly in films such as Coffee, Foxy Brown, and Sheba Baby, but it's fun to see her downplay her action star roots in Friday Foster mostly free from the racial stereotypes commonly seen in black exploitation fare, Greer's Friday is a simple career girl, vulnerable and scared but brave in the face of danger. Yeah. And now the moment of this film that sums up this quote and then brings into this quality that we've been talking about is that shower scene. Mm. So it's like it's a sec, you know, sexualized fow- shower scene, here's Pam Greer naked in mm-hmm. a shower, you know, we're seeing her topless. And then Carl Weathers as the assassin like comes into her house. She catches him at the last moment. He like dives into the shower. She runs out of her apartment and grabs a towel and is running down the hall, but is like ostensibly naked and like soaking wet. She seeks solace like behind a family who's like walking into their apartment. And then she has this standoff with Carl Weathers in the hallway. And she's so vulnerable you know just covering herself barely with a towel we've mm-hmm. just seen her naked and she looks at this guy who's trying to kill her and her in her eyes it comes over with this like incredible strength and Carl Weather's like stares her down and decides like this is not the moment and he backs down the hallway yeah. and she survives i mean and for her again for her to play it with just like pure honesty yeah When like you know your body's being exploited, you know you're, you know, being like this character put into a dangerous situation. It's got like all the things and she plays it so well.
1: And just the idea of this was not the movie where she pulled a gun out of her afro and just shot him or whatever, you know what I mean? Like she it would played out in a totally different way than I think what other people had seen her in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally totally fresh for that moment for her. And, you know, I think that that's a testament to her talent where she, she can be both. She can be, you know, both types of women. They showed this somewhere. I was traveling recently and I saw this, they were playing this at a theater that I, uh, and I was like, I should go in there and watch it. Cause I haven't seen it, I think since we aired it, but I just remember when we were pulling the stills for the, from the film I was like, God, she is probably her most beautiful. Like, I don't know, just love the look, like the pantsuit look in with the camera around her oh, neck. Yeah. I mean, she's just so pretty.
0: Absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Uh, just, just amazing and great dialogue. Yeah. Uh, doesn't drag. It's like witty, but yeah. like it, they never like indulge in like jokes or anything. Like the the plot keeps like moving along. Yeah. It's like tight ninety minutes.
1: Love oh. a ninety minute movie. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> Ninety minutes or less, people. Yeah. <laughs> I prefer.
0: <laughs> uh, and great sound soundtrack. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great good. theme song.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Also, a real testament to a car thievery in this movie. She steals like <laughs> she steals like four cars to like drive after various bad guys. <laughs> never faces repercussions for her car thieving.
1: Oh my god! We always talk about that. How it was so easy to steal cars in the seventies. Like a lot of times, people just kept their keys in it. I'm like, that just <laughs> seems wild to me. I could never imagine.
0: Like the movies must have ruined it because so many characters are just getting into cars that don't belong to them.
1: I know. It's like we talk about that on the podcast. Danielle, I'm like, oh, here's another car with the keys just literally sit in the front seat. And now <laughs> Robert Redford is driving it away, or whatever. You're like, cracks me up.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, if Friday Foster is maybe a a high water mark of sort of black exploitation like themes, mm-hmm. and we're gonna jump way ahead thirteen years mm. to an actual a loving parody.
1: Yes. Of the genre. Yes.
0: Of course I'm talking about I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Yes. From
1: nineteen eighty-eight. No. It's got passion. Pumps. Rhythm and soul. Great brother! Who these guys? It's my theme music. Every good hero should have some. I'm gonna get you Don't say that. I'm going to get you, sucker. Even if you can't say it, you got to see it. I got you, sucker.
0: This film, written, directed by, and starring Keenan Ivory Waynes, is his feature film debut. The film is about a soldier, Jack Spade, who returns to his hometown of... Any Ghetto USA where he learns that his brother Junebug has died from an overdose of gold chains. Yes, Vowing to destroy local chain lord Mr. Big he seeks the aid of aging local hero John Slade. Together they form a crack team of black blaxploitation characters including Kung Fu Joe Fly Guy Slammer and Hammer. <laughs> the film stars Keenan Ivory Waynes as Jack Bernie Casey as John Slade Antonio Fargan as Fly Guy, Steve James as Kung Fu Joe, Isaac Hayes as Hammer, and Jim Brown, the NFL player, as Slammer. Uh, Janet Du Bois as Ma Bell, Don Lewis as Cheryl, and then in smaller roles you have Damon Waynes, Chris Rock, and Kim Wayne's. I mean, yeah. Fab fabulous film.
1: Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I listen, I, I swear I wish Toya was here because uh she, weirdly enough, programmed this movie for Underground uh, back when it aired. And it was funny because I loved this movie growing up. I thought it was so funny. Like the whole, I mean, obviously, like the iconic scene of like Chris Rock going to the uh, fast food place and asking for...
0: For one rib. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to think, I used to laugh and imitate that all the time when this movie came out. Um, but like she, when she first came to TCM, I had already been there for many years but then she you know she was like she came to my desk and she was like I'm just obsessed with underground and I would love to work on it with you in any way shape or form and I was like yeah dude of course like love it like I love like anybody that like knows what I'm doing in the middle of the night like I love it and so she I was like you should go through some you know and and program some things like give me some ideas you know and this was like at the top of her list and I was like oh my God, we definitely have to play this movie on TV, on TCM, because it's like so funny. And honestly, like, it is like a love letter to those films. I mean, obviously, you've got Bernie Casey and Jim Brennan, like uh, Isaac Hayes. I mean, it's like all these people that were a part of that era. But it's still funny on its own. It's like, It's not going into the world where they're, like, making fun of these movies. It's, like, truly, like, this is a part of our culture and this is, but, you know, we're celebrating it while also making this, like, really funny sight gag type of film. You know what I mean? What do you think
0: makes this film stand out from, like, other uh, parody films which i think can oftentimes like they really don't stand up for me yeah uh and can be feel very like of their time and place yes and they either have to be like so zany that they're like off the wall like top secret or something
1: yes um
0: but this one like stays true to its parodiness yeah and grounded in a actual like plot
1: yeah uh while
0: still being so charming how do you how does it do that
1: yeah i think it was like Because obviously, you know, I think the Wayans family has done very well for themselves in the parody business. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they we did an episode. Oh, my God. We did an episode like a couple of years ago of the of the podcast that I do about the Wayans family and we we were like, like we gave it like a 20 word title because we were like, it should be like a dissertation on, and we ended up playing, like we ended up talking about, God, I don't even remember what we were talking about, like white chicks or something, but you know, it was like bringing like this film discourse to these movies that were like, that are probably playing on TV right now, like five times in a day. Um, right. I think that this movie is more subtle, obviously than all of the subsequent, wayans parody films that come out i think that the keenan irie wayans character is one that you ultimately root for and there's like a love story in there like you're just like oh this is like a fully realized film that is also like a parody of a exploitation movie so you're right it, it has its own beats you know and i think that's what makes it less over the top
0: Yeah. uh, uh, Talking about earnestness, uh, the love story of this film, (laughs) you know, so often in these like comedy movies, the love story feels really kind of shoehorned in there. Uh, But Cheryl, the like his love interest in the film plays the story like with such like an emotive earnestness and it's like a little over the top like it's exaggerated it sort of like reminds me of like audrey in little shop of horrors yes. you know, it's like oh seymour <laughs> you know she's kind of like bringing some of that energy to this yeah, yeah, yeah. but it really works and yeah. it does like ground the film in something real
1: yeah and because ultimately <laughs> when they like Staff up or whatever when they get when they it's like go time yeah you do feel like yeah like this is awesome like and I think that it's not I think that's because the the Keenan character is developed in a way to where you're you're rooting for these people like I don't know I think that that is really what it's about for me because I agree that like some sometimes the parody films get. I mean, it is like one thing right after another. And you're just like, okay, okay, we get it, we get it. But I think if you let it breathe a little bit, that's what I think happened in this film, is that it it gave, gave it a chance to breathe a little bit.
0: Do you have a favorite character from this movie? I mean... Because there's so many great ones.
1: I know. I mean, I dude, the dudes, like the old school dudes. Like when you see like Antonio Vargas, like when all those guys come back, you're like, Hell yes! Like I just love it. I love like that to me was so. That's what makes this movie so great for me is that it is like a celebration of those films. But like those actors, like Isaac Hayes, like Jim Brown. I mean, Bernie Casey is the dude. Like you're yeah. like holy shit! Like he was in some amazing shit, and I just love that. And they're all wearing like sports coats. Or whatever. Like, I don't know. Like I like when they like are wearing normal clothes and you know like. Is it Jim Brown that's wearing just, like, slacks and a sports coat? I don't remember, but, yeah. you know. It's, well, they're like,
0: all, it's, like, they're all, like, old dudes. Yes! And like, they, like, really I, lean in. They're,
1: like, wearing grandpa pants. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, I love all these guys. So.
0: Yeah. I think Kung Fu Joe has got to take the cake. Oh, for I
1: me. mean, duh. It's, <laughs> duh. It's so awesome. <laughs> oh, shit. You know, the other
0: thing, like, for me, so I'm, so I'm, 33 now, 33. Mm. So, I grew up like you know, scary movie came out when I was like 12, uh-huh. and like I was not into it. Like, yeah. it was like I just didn't get it. And at that point, the Wayne's family, brothers, whatever, had already sort of like staked their claim in pop culture, and I just wrote it off as like, Yeah, I'm not interested in this. Like, this isn't for me. Yeah, and to see this movie again, first time watching it. And then, like, to do some reading and place this in his career. So this is, like, crazy, and I'm sure you know all this, but for our, our, our listeners here, like, uh, Keenan Ivory Waynes, he's a scholarship engineering student at Tuskegee University after growing up in New York City. he's He drops out in his last semester of college to pursue comedy. Mm. And he's, like, one of the older brothers, I believe, if not the oldest. If, yeah, I
1: think he might be the oldest. So that's, like, a huge
0: thing. Yeah. I mean like you're an engineering student from a, a lower income family and like you're almost at the finish line and then your poor your poor parents you drop out to pursue comedy pivot <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Like>, what <laughs> so then d- so despite that he works his way up through the comedy ranks he co-writes Hollywood Shuffle with Robert Townsend amazing the following year he writes the opening sketch for Eddie Murphy's Raw all before he gets to make this film where he directs writes and stars in and you guys have a detail in the book about like studio execs trying to make this a white film with like anthony michael hall and charles bronson Mm. i mean like gag me with a spoon (laughs) um and then uh a few years later he goes on to create uh in living color yeah that sort of like that is an incredible story that is a miracle yeah story it is, and it would totally be missed on me. Yeah, because I, I, just, I had no idea.
1: Yeah, I know. It's I'm I'm older than you. I'll, I'll throw that out there. Uh, so I, I grew up within Living Color. Like I was, yeah. you know, like a kid of the late eight, late eighties, early nineties type of thing. And so I was obsessed with In Living Color. Like I watched it every week. It was like prime time viewing. Yeah, like for me and my friends, and we would. Oh my god, I have. I swear to you, there's like a VHS tape in my parents' house right now in Florida, where my sister and I are probably doing fake in living color sketches. Oh my god! Like we definitely would do Homeboy Shopping Club. Like we, like we were, you know, obsessed with like. There's like a, uh, I think it was Kim Wayans, she played the like Jamaican woman. There's like a Jamaican character, (laughs) like everything, men on film, fire marshal bill, like all that stuff. We were like, I swear there was like video, there's a videotape out there where we're doing reenacting sketches. So I saw, I'm going to get you sucker after I saw In Living Color because it used to play on TV because I think once that, the success of that show, they were Playing that movie a lot on cable, like on TBS and stuff. Yeah, and I remember seeing it for the first time and being like, I mean, it for me felt like more subdued than the show. Like I was like, oh my god, like this is like an actual feature length film with like the people from In Living Color, but it's not like care like there's not these like giant characters in your face, you know, like that kind of stuff. It was more of a movie. And I was rocked by that. Like, I was like, holy shit, this is, like, something. I didn't realize that they had done anything prior to that at all. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, like, for me, this movie I found out about much later. And then when you realize that his history goes further back, you know, you're just like, holy shit. Oh, yeah, he was with Robert Townsend. I mean, come on, that's crazy. Like, he he used to work with Eddie Murphy. Like, you're like, wow, that's, like, an incredible career. And then uh, just to think about, like, His entire family is like in the business or has appeared in like films and TV shows is crazy. Like, I'm just like, wow, yeah, what a family, you know,
0: amazing, yeah, amazing. Um, as an only child, I'm like, I can't even comprehend it, and I'm like, very jealous.
1: I know. I was like, I wish me and all my siblings were incredibly successful. That's amazing. Like, you know, like, and you're just like, cause that's the other thing, too, is that like, I think a lot of people, kids these days, only know like Marlon and um, the youngest one, like those two guys that are like, Their work, I mean, Marlon is actually, like, kind of an older guy now. I think he's in his, like, 50s or something. But, like, there's, like, a new, like, a younger. And then the sons, Damon Wayans' son is in stuff. Like, he's on TV shows and that kind of thing. So it's just, like, generations are now involved. Like, it's not just, like the siblings but it's like their grandkids and their kids and i mean it's just crazy
0: the weigh-ins and the coppolas
1: i know it's <laughs> amazing
0: two peas in a pod i know right <laughs> um okay so these are so these are the movies we've covered from the book but before i let you go okay i want to play just a little little question game oh, okay okay <laughs> um okay so and if anyone's still listening i I put this at the end of the podcast because if you're still listening then clearly you love (laughs) beer
1: you love movies okay and you
0: love movies (laughs) but millie and i also share another interest outside of movies in that you're also a basketball fan.
1: I am. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I am a huge basketball fan. And I'm always trying to like tie like sports and movies together, like in my head and like bring together these artsy fartsy, like my like artsy fartsy loves with my love of the NBA. Yes. Okay. So here's a so two part question for you. And it doesn't have to be like superficial or whatever, but just sort of off the cuff. Okay. Question one, who is your favorite director?
1: My favorite film director? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Oh my God. What am I going to do here? Oh my God. This is so hard. I know. (laughs) Oh geez. I don't, I don't know if I want to put it on one person. I'm trying to think of somebody that I have seen because now I got to break this up. Like, okay, okay. Are we talking modern? This is so nerdy. Classic Hollywood era. modern still alive people
0: it could be anything okay unbound (laughs) it's just you know anything you want i would say like who is the person that like when you think of like they embody like my ideals as like a movie goer as like a movie person as like yeah
1: oh yeah honestly it might be somebody like john carpenter you know, John Carpenter is like one of those folks that I've seen like every John Carpenter movie and I've enjoyed pretty much every single one of them.
0: Amazing. Um Great. We could we can totally okay. go with John Carpenter. <laughs> okay. Perfect.
1: Yeah. Don't let me think about this too much because yeah, yeah, yeah. I will be here all day.
0: I, I totally empathize. Okay. So got John Carpenter. Yes. And just... it, it, you could change your mind in five minutes. Yes. But for right now, <laughs> <laughs> for right now it's John Carpenter. Okay. Okay. What NBA player? From either modern era or in history, would you say if John Carpenter was to be reincarnated as an NBA player, who would he be?
1: You know, John Carpenter is a huge basketball fan. Did you know that? I have no idea. Oh, my God. Huge. Really? Oh, yeah. Like huge.
0: Is he a Lakers guy?
1: I think so. Right, because he can't be like a Golden State dude or something, right? Where is he from? L.A. I don't know. I but I think he tweets about. He used to tweet about basketball, oh. and there was there was all these like rumors or like stories about him where he would not come to events because he was watching basketball. I was it. Like he'd be like, I'm not coming to the AO5 tribute because I'm watching my games. Or Fucking
0: whatever. amazing. Um,
1: okay. Oh my god. If. I don't want to get this wrong because he loves basketball so much.
0: I also I have an example of my my own yes, that yes. I could throw oh. out and sort of like maybe yes. like set some parameters. Give me
1: some metrics. Yes. Okay. Yes.
0: And I know it's totally unfair because I thought about this beforehand because yes. I thought of the question. Okay. Okay. My favorite filmmaker, and you know I keep thinking that I'm going to revise this, but I just can't. My favorite filmmaker is Akira Kurosawa. He sure. Just, it just is. Of I course. know it's a film bro take. Yes. But it just it just is. He just hits the he just hits the buttons for Of course,
1: me. I t- totally understandable.
0: Now if Akira Kurosawa was a basketball player, I think he'd be Kobe Bryant. Okay. And here's here's why. Here's why. Here's okay. why. Now, Kurosawa was not the like young firebrand that young Kobe was. Sure. But here's my reasoning. They were both ridiculed as sort of try-hard imitations of like contemporaries or others like kurosawa was always like well he's not as japanese as ozu sure whereas kobe was always like he's not mj he's just an mj imitator yes. and he's not as real as alan iverson yes right he's like he's playing to the audience yes and like kurosawa got the same you know sort of criticism yes okay they they, bo- they could do it all though they could do the old school you know, Kurosawa can hit you with the samurai films. He can hit you with a noir, like a contemporary noir, like yes. you wouldn't believe.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: They both had, they both adopted a warrior ethos, like to their craft, yes. you know, and like identified with this sort of like samurai mentality, like yes. towards their work. They both had this like mid-career, like traumatic event, obviously Kobe with the accusations and like all that that like we didn't know if he'd come back from it and kurosawa attempted suicide in the mid 70s yet they both came back and like reinvented themselves as these sort of like philosopher artists and like had these late career successes Mm -hmm. that like were really like not guaranteed by any measure yes um and then finally like they both like created this cult-like following that really shepherded in the next generation. Yes. Like, all modern NBA players, like, worship Kobe in a way that, like, LeBron would never get that kind of adoration. Yes. Whereas, like, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, like, literally paid for Kurosawa to keep making movies. Like, that's how indebted they were to him.
1: Yeah. Wow. That is really good. That's a really good textual analysis. Uh, (laughs) I love that. Um... (laughs) so par- okay it's hard i feel very i feel a lot of pressure to get this right because i knowing what we know about john carpenter being an nba guy if you're listening mr carpenter i really don't mean to disrespect you
0: but thank you so much for listening I I, really appreciate, we
1: appreciate your support
0: <laughs> really appreciate your support
1: i mean part of me wants to obviously go like a dennis rodman or something like because he's got like he's you know he makes these like horror movies and he's I mean, maybe he's the Detroit Pistons in the late eighties. I don't know. He's an mm. entire team. Um oh. bad boys or something. I don't know. I
0: He is he's Isaiah Thomas yes. and Bill Lambert.
1: Yes. Yeah. Maybe he's <laughs> not Dumas. like you know, pushing people on the court like Bill Lambert, but he's you know, like I don't know. I to me he kind of reminds me of a rebel in that way. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who your team is. I'm a Lakers.
0: Oh, you're Lakers Lakers. a Lakers person. See, fan, I'm yeah. a
1: Hawks person. Okay.
0: Have you been a Hawks person your whole NBA fandom? Yes. What was your, was like, were you? Well, did you I, be- I
1: did like the Bulls in the 90s. I mean, everybody did. How could you not? So I, I was like obsessed with the Bulls. And I also, uh, I really loved Christian Leitner when I was in middle school. and wow. I Wow. <laughs> no, I know. What was, an admission. I know. That's, I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was embarrassed that I hadn't seen any of these movies before, but that was quite... This is like taxi cab confessions over here.
1: I know. I d- I did not obviously I had no ties to Duke in any way, but I was like, "Oh, he's so cute in middle school." And then I was like, "Oh, but he now he's an NBA player, NBA player and he kind of sucks." Uh, he was a Hawk too. Um if I could pick cuz now I I'm thinking about this in terms of the of the current Hawks, right? If okay. there was a current Hawks player who would be like John Carpenter, I think it's either John Collins or DeJounte Murray. I, I, you know, like formidable, like John Collins is kind of like the the dad of the team. And I, I respect that. DeJounte is like a good, good player, consistent, John Carpenter makes consistently good horror movies. I don't know. This is like such a hard thing. to. Th-
0: I know. This is like such an on the spot question, yes. but like, I think actually I really like your John Collins. I'm going to, I'm going to latch onto the John Collins comparison. Okay. Now, just within the context of the Hawks, because I think that like in the, if we were to take all of NBA history, I think John Carpenter is like higher up the totem pole than John Collins is. hundred percent. Of all NBA history, but just of the modern Hawks. Yes. Because yeah, like, does the dirty work, like gets in your face, but like also underappreciated. Yes. And like isn't like, I don't think he's like necessarily always put into positions where he can succeed. Yes. Like, the offense is so trace centric and Collins has gotten totally sidelined. He's asked to do things like that like he shouldn't have to do. And like I feel like Carpenter, like, that's in a way that's like characterized some of his career. And yet he keeps like putting out gems putting out gems yeah. and like
1: and also John Collins is not afraid of a a shorter inseam on the shorts than everybody else. He's really he, and I feel like John Carpenter has <laughs> I don't know if I, I I met John Carpenter once a long time ago at the TCM Film Festival and um he The best thing that I I remember about him, because he was very, very nice to me. I was only around him for maybe like 20 minutes. I had to like escort him for a film. He was like introducing a 50s science fiction film or something. And of course, they're like, we're going to put you with him. You're going to make sure he gets out of his limo or his car or whatever. And I was shook. Like I was like, I can't believe I'm about to meet John Carpenter. He was super nice. The one thing that I thought was so cool about him is that he was wearing... Baseball socks, like stirrup socks. So he was just like wearing like a, his classic like middle-aged guy outfit, and then he crossed his legs, and his, his pant leg like, came up, and he was wearing like those weird stirrup socks that you'd wore like b- t-ball in like middle school. Like, they're not the actual separated stirrup. They're, like, this stirrup painted on the sock type of thing. I was like, what in the world is this? Like, he was wearing, like, that's a fashion choice. And I feel like John Collins does that with his inseam. He's got, I swear it's not a five-inch inseam, but it's, like, he's really showing off the the quads. <laughs> like, in, in a way that nobody else on the team really is. Like, everybody's got the long shorts, and he's kind of he's wearing those uh, shorter shorts. And I'm like, good for him. Like, he's... He's showing those, he's showing his legs off and God, God bless you, dude. Like what a, what a choice. What a wow. fashion choice.
0: This is the kind of in-depth analysis, <laughs> the, the in-depth in-seam analysis. You can only get here on behind the slate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I'm going to tell you this right now. If you ever want to start an NBA film podcast, let me be a guest. Cause I I w- I would love to chop chop this up all day
0: oh my god yeah <laughs> is
1: okay. there an, is there a baseball or a basketball film podcast that talks about classic films and directors alongside nba players because no. i think you started something <laughs> if you, if in. I, I don't
0: i i man i don't even know i like i don't even know how it would work like just,
1: <laughs> i just... think what you just did is the podcast going like akira kurosawa is you know whomever and here's why
0: Okay. Here's
1: Kobe. Like this is why. Yeah. So.
0: Oh man. Yeah, think that about would be, it. I know you don't need
1: another podcast, but I'm just saying, <laughs> if you wanted to start it, I would listen. That'd be dope. Yeah.
0: That'd be really dope. I will say, um, uh, as a companion piece to your meeting John Carpenter, um, I was I got cast in a NBA inside the NBA commercial. What? Like, like six years ago. No. Dude, it, I was freaking. Out. Oh. and here's the thing is that the commercial actually shot like right down the street from my house over in glenwood oh, wow. uh, like or like by the kroger glenwood kroger and um it was uh, there was a rain delay on the shoot and we were supposed to knock it all out in one day and they're like oh we have to cancel early and i was like oh man like maybe i'll just get cut from this commercial whatever like being an actor sucks yeah instead i get a call five days later and they're like actually we want you to come down to studio j on inside the NBA night and we're going to knock out this commercial like in a studio across the hall. What? Yeah. So then I'm getting my makeup done in the uh the the hallway with Charles Kenny Shaq, Shaq. and oh Ernie. Oh my
1: god, I know. And
0: I am freaking out and like I'm trying to stay cool but like you know and then but like I'm also like trying to throw in a joke. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, I'm like I like I want to be a part of it. Oh my god. And but then cat. So then I'm casually in the hallway. I'm like waiting to be called to set or whatever. And Isaiah Thomas like walks up next to me. Whoa.
1: And he's like,
0: Hey man, like, how's it going? And, uh, I like had a book in my hand, like a, a screenwriting book. And he's like, what are you reading? And I'm like, Oh, you know, it's this book about Joseph Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> and then and like, he was like, Oh cool. What's your name? I was like, Aaron. And then like trying to like, I don't even know what I was thinking. I was just like, what's yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's like, oh Isaiah, like nice to meet you. Wild, anyway. Oh my God. So your your Pistons comparison, if he was Isaiah Thomas at least works on that regard.
1: Yeah, I but, <laughs> yeah. Isaiah was a little a little bit more confront I guess confrontational or yeah. at least a little bit more fuck you back in the day, but I yeah, I swear like uh, when I used to work in that building, you can cut this if you want to, but I used to work in that, you know, that Turner building yeah. where they did that, and I remember one day getting off the elevator and Charles Barkley got on the elevator and it was literally like meeting a building. Like I was like because I'm fucking short. I'm like 5'4". And I was like, holy shit. It's like a, a a building is a man, and he's, like, walking into an elevator. I was like, these are the tallest dudes I've ever seen. Like, I mean, I I can't even imagine seeing Shaq in person. But Charles Barkley, I was like, holy fuck.
0: I don't know if I'm going to keep this on the podcast, but uh, that same night, I saw Shaq's penis.
1: Oh, my God. The studio? Because he
0: was changing, he just changed ah! his pants. Now it gets even, Millie, it gets even crazier. <laughs> and my wife, like, brings up this story, like, when we're, like, meeting strangers, she'll be like, he saw Shaq's penis. What? Uh, um, Because he was changing his pants and he was like, and so it just, it, like, it came out for a little bit and then he just, like, pulled his pants up and th- he looked at me, like, at this r- roughly around the same time and he says, yeah, that's a good looking dude right there
1: i would have my brain would have just fallen on the floor
0: yeah man I, what a
1: sequence of events for you
0: i was i, I was i was shocked yes I was shocked.
1: that was a pivotal pivotal moment in your life i will say yeah, i
0: think so I yeah. mean I, you know as soon as <laughs> i got home that night and i believe my quote was you can put this on my gravestone yeah. Shaq said I was a good-looking dude. Roughly at the same time when his penis was out. Wow,
1: dude, that blows my John Carpenter story completely out of the water. That is incredible.
0: It was uh, it was quite a night. (laughs) Yes, you could call it the peak of my acting career. Uh,
1: uh, Look, if you if you do nothing after that, that is at least that's like your Citizen Kane moment, really. So holy shit, amazing. Oh
0: man. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, I'm gonna wrap things up here. Millie, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find you, follow you, see what you got coming up next?
1: Sure, yeah. So I um I'm mean, I'm like on all the social media stuff. I mean honestly, like it's probably easiest to follow my Twitter. I'm just at Millie to Uh I, I got to admit, I don't tweet as much as I used to. I really just like follow the Hawks Twitter <laughs> and then look at, <laughs> look at look at look at the timeline once in a while. But um, yeah, I'm there. I, I the podcast is I Saw What You Did. It's on the Exactly Right Network. Uh, the Episodes come out every Tuesday And you can find that on Apple, Wondery, like, all that stuff.
0: Yeah, you guys were on the, like, the Apple podcast, like, splash page, like, a couple weeks ago. That was was crazy.
1: I was like, what is my photo doing there? I forgot we took those photos, by the way. That was, like, (laughs) we did this weird photo shoot in L.A. at the very beginning of the pandemic, and Danielle and I were, like, I mean, it was, like, when full sloth mode was happening for everybody, like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pajama bottoms every day like right. I, I was baking like two cakes a day like eating them alone <laughs> in my apartment so I was like "Oh yeah, it was Cake like days. full sloth mode and we were like oh we're having our photo professionally taken when we're at our worst you know <laughs> and then for when we saw that splash page she actually texted me was like damn I forgot we did that photo shoot I was like <laughs> I know and now we're on this freaking <laughs> thing why why uh, so it was exciting but also like it reminded me of, uh, <laughs> of not getting your photo taken like that. So, uh.
0: <laughs> well, everyone should definitely check out. Their podcast. I mean, it really is fantastic. They really are like the movie friends you wish you had. Like Aww. they get to get, it's like you're hanging out. It, it really accomplishes that pure gold of podcasts where it's like, I'm hanging out with my friends who don't know I exist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. No, thank you for saying that. I think that's what we want to do. So
0: yeah. And plus you find out about amazing films. I mean, you guys are pulling like great stuff, like all the time stuff I've never heard of, never seen. And then a bunch of stuff that I have, and it's great to like relive it with you guys. So yeah, um, Just love it. Um, And of course, please go out and get TCM Underground 50 Must See Films from the World of Classic Cult and Late Night Cinema. Fantastic book. Um, I hope you've enjoyed us going through some of these selections today. Uh, As always, you can email me behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at behindtheslatepod. And until next time, that's a wrap. (laughs)